0: You can use pride or humility to look at so many aspects right throughout the Bible. It's this occurring theme, reoccurring theme. That's there. So last week he challenged us. Were we going to be people of humility who wanted to seek God's kingdom first and then to trust that he would supply all our needs? Or were we instead going to be people who, in pride, pursued our own path and were filled with worry about whether or not we were really going to make it, whether we would have what we would need. So that pride and humility um, challenge that he spoke about last week was on the vertical axis, if you like. Well, this week we're looking at pride and humility on the horizontal axis when we come to judging others. Looking at the way that our pride might get in the way of the way we view other people. Maybe I'm dreaming, but I reckon we become a much more critical, judgmental, an arrogant society. Do you feel that or is it just that I'm getting old? Anyone else feel like that? You do? I think we've become extremely judgmental as a society. I mean, turn on the talkback radio show and every second caller is judging someone or criticising something that's going on. I've been eavesdropping in the coffee shops over the last week, as I try to do my annual survey in preparing for today and as I was eavesdropping, none of you were there at the time, let me just assure you of that, and ease your mind. But the conversations that were happening, he said, I don't know whether they should have done that. So much criticism that so we want to level against others. Look at our parliament. The last couple of months have been a circus, haven't they? Hypocrisy, judgment of other people, their motives, and all these different things. But it's not just out there, it's in our church. I mean, the current situation. With Bill Hybels and Willow Creek is a sad one. And yet, there is so much judgment. There's so much, um, I suppose, uh, taking the high moral and spiritual ground in that. I'm not a great social media follower. I don't get on that very much at all. But Pete, who is, tells me that what's happening on there and all the judgment and accusations are following that around there is this growing outrage. We don't know the circumstances. But right there in the midst of the church world, there is that as well. But that judgment is not just out there, it's not just on radio, it's not just people out there, it's not just politicians, it's not just other churches. This judging of others is something that you and I are engaged in each day. No, I certainly am. I can go back and remember, um, I used to love to go off to sports ministries conferences that were held over in the United States. I remember going to one of the first ones. There were 580 people from 143 different nations. Absolutely amazing. And to be led in worship by people from the Caribbean or the African continent was something I will never forget. To sit down in small groups of of 10, others from all around different continents, and to share life, to talk about what we were doing in sports ministry, and then to, I suppose, just share life and grow as friends was an amazing experience. And something I still reflect on. So here we were amongst these people. In one of the first sessions, I can remember, there were people speaking around me. The speaker's presenting up the front, people speaking around. I'm thinking, gee, they're rude. Totally rude. Why why don't they go outside and catch up, get a cup of coffee, sit down, and talk about their backgrounds and all their experiences with each other. And I started as they kept on talking to think, to just judging them. The about the motives and everything, and obviously I wasn't the only person that felt like that. After the break, the MC went to the front and he said, I want to thank so many people that are engaged here and worked so hard to get this going. And there's a group of people that even while we hold our sessions are working very hard. I want to thank our interpreters over there. The Spanish interpreters are just over there here where I was sitting. Portuguese over here. Our Arabic friends are over there. And he went around that room and I was rebuked. It was I, just in the ordinary course of life, judging other people, their motives, their actions, and suggesting in my own mind they should take a walk and do something different. This judging of others is not just something that happens to people that we don't know. I have that battle, and I'm sure you do too. Did I, for one minute, think that 580 people from 143 different nations would all speak the one language? I'm not going to answer that question. (laughs) I'm not going to answer that question. Our passage today, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. It's a phrase I'm sure that you and I have heard many, many times in discussions when defences come up. Don't judge or you too will be judged, don't you judge me. Who do you think you are to tell me what I should be doing? How is it that you can take the high moral or spiritual ground? Aren't we all sinners? How dare you judge me? And so this type of verse that we're reading here is often used as a shield to defend us from the attacks, perhaps even to have us defend our own sin in our lives. And that wasn't Jesus' intention with this verse. Far from it. Far from it. Jesus was explicitly rebuking the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. The Pharisees who wanted to hold everyone else accountable to a certain way of doing things, to a certain style of living, to a whole lot of rules and regulations that they have imposed without being people who were themselves going to be their their own worst critics of a better word. holding themselves up to a higher stand. So what does it really mean? What's this passage of Scripture all about? What does it mean to judge? The type of judgment Jesus is talking about is condemning and it's fault-finding. It's setting ourselves up as a judge and a jury and finding someone else to be guilty without having the same type of self-criticism ourselves without no acknowledgment of our own shortcomings, our own failures, our own insecurities, our own sin. The message, Bible puts it this way. Translation says, don't pick on people, jump on their failures, criticise their faults, unless, of course, you want the same truth. That critical spirit is a way of boomerang. Perhaps there's no better example of boomeranging in church circles than... Um, than the case of uh, Jimmy Baker. Remember Jimmy Baker? Well, some of you probably weren't born back in the 1980s, but uh, Jimmy Baker was this um, television evangelist and praised the Lord Ministries. And Jimmy Baker was exposed for his sexual um, sin and also the fraud, his fraud of the organisation. And uh, another television evangelist, Jimmy swagger was interviewed on CNN and he got stuck into Jimmy Baker. He really got stuck into Jimmy Baker. He called Jimmy Baker a cancer on the Christian community. He left no doubt about the way he thought about Jimmy Baker. And yet just a couple of months later, he was exposed for the same type of sexual sin and the same type of fraud that Jimmy Baker had been exposed for. Our judgment has a way of boomerang on us because none of us are perfect. So why do we judge others? I think this is an important question for us. And some of these are the planks, if you like, the planks in our own lives. There are some obvious reasons, because judging others helps boost our own crumbling self-image. We think that by putting others down, it elevates us. We somehow become a little better in our own eyes by putting others down. It also helps us to justify and to rationalise our own sins. We've got a way of doing that, haven't we? For example, other people lose their temper and they, go and they fly off the handle whereas we suffer just a righteous indignation. Other people are total jerks we're just having a bad day. Yeah. Other people are so, um, so critical, have a critical spirit and we just tell the truth as it is. And maybe even say so we tell the truth in laugh. Other people are pushy, and we can sometimes think we're just goal-oriented. We've got a way of justifying our own behaviour so often. And what Jesus is saying to us is, hey, get the plank out of your own eye before you want to point the finger at someone else. I think another reason that we judge others is we've confused excellence with perfectionism. We live in a world where excellence is a buzzword and even in our church we want to do things well. We want to do things as we run the centre. We want to run an excellent sports centre that provides a wonderful service that really serves our community well. Excellence is an important thing but we need to know the difference between pursuing excellence and crossing the line where we pursue perfectionism. People striving for excellence know that there comes a time when the best that they can do has got to be enough and they can leave it there. They're satisfied enough with that. But people that pursue perfectionism, they strive, they strive so often for the unattainable ideal. And it pushes them over the edge and they hold themselves to such a, a high standard, they they expect the same of everybody else. David Siemens, an author and a pastor writing in Christianity Today. He said, Perfectionism is the most disturbing emotional problem among evangelical Christians. He said, It walks into my office more than any other Christian hangout. And he goes on to say, These people become guilt-ridden, overloaded, unhappy, and uncomfortably yoked Christians. They are rigid in their outlook. They're frigid in their lovelessness. And they're conforming to the approval and disapproval of others. Pretty sad commentary, isn't it? What happens within us when we pursue perfectionism? And I think that leads on to the next reason that we're judgmental. That is, we really haven't understood grace. We haven't understood grace. From the time we're born, we are being moulded and we're being shaped. For those of us that have the privilege of being born into good families, we're taught what it means to show good manners, to show respect, and to treat people well, to share what we have. From a young age, we're taught all the basics about the way we live our life. When we go to school, we're given a whole lot of other rules and ways in which to live. And I've shared with you before my experience when I lost my handkerchief at school, which was one of the things we had to present each day, and my first-class teacher, Miss Hicks, got stuck into me I didn't realise what a life-threatening situation it was to forget your handkerchief or to lose your handkerchief. Miss Miss Hicks had no doubt about it. She ripped into me. I'd failed, I'd fallen short. For, for those of us that then went to Sunday school, we taught with, with what Jesus expected of us. And the rules that we needed to live by. And so we're brought up with this whole aspect of the things that we need to do to measure up. I was growing up to be a little rule keeper. And I'm sure you were too. Or should I say a part-time rule keeper. Because I realised it was impossible to keep the rules all the time. And even when I became a Christian, I understood all that God had for me. I understood God's love for me. I understood God's forgiveness. There was that voice that kept on coming to me. Obviously, I recognise it now to be the voice of the devil to say, come right? Who are you trying to kill? You're never going to measure up. Well. You call yourself a Christian. Look at other people. Their faith seems to be okay. But you're living a life of a fan. So I judge myself by that. And I heard of God's grace I knew of God's forgiveness. I was serving God in ministry. And yet, the forgiveness and the grace of God hadn't travelled from my head to my heart. I can quote all the verses of Scripture. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And yet, I still held myself to these little rules, and judge myself on how I was living those out. And I wasn't freed from that until I started to read the writing of Brendan Manning, an alcoholic Catholic priest, an amazing man whose journey was truly, truly grace-filled. And as he battled with alcoholism his whole life, he recognised that right in the midst of that, he found the grace of God in a way, that he couldn't comprehend. And I remember reading one of his books. I was on a plane. I was sitting in the window seat and I was reading the Ragamuffin Gospel. And as I went through the experiences of Brennan Manning's life and as I recounted my own and I saw the way that God had just breathed new life into this man, an amazing thing happened. The grace went from my head to my heart and I found myself weeping. Weeping in this plane. Uncontrollably weeping. There was a lady next to me in the middle seat and she must have wondered what the heck was going on. I'd been reading a book and all of a sudden I was weak. But what happened was the grace of God started to be expressed in my life in the most amazing way. I was free. And those things that I knew in my mind to be true became true in my heart. And I started to live that out. And then an amazing thing happened for me. I was freed from the rules that I wanted to live out and keep myself. And not only was I free, I was free enough to forgive others. I could cut myself slack. And because of that, I knew what it was to give others grace, to truly give them grace too. Brendan Manning passed away a few years ago. And he battled with what he described as self-hate. He says, of a very common issue amongst Christians. It's a barrier to love. We hate and we judge other people, not because we love ourselves too much, but because we're not able to love ourselves enough. We fear and distrust others because we feel inadequate in our relationships with God and with them. And so we live with criticism ourselves and criticism of others. Why? All well, because grace hasn't gone from here to here. We don't understand the depth of forgiveness that Jesus offers us. We don't fully comprehend his extravagant love. We're still striving to gain God's acceptance and approval. When we step up in life, we don't recognise That all is forgiven and was forgiven at the cross. Friends, if you battle with judgmental attitudes, if you battle with a lack of forgiveness, can I truly ask you have you experienced God's grace? Has God's grace in your life gone from your head to your heart? Do you know that? Have you forgiven yourself? Are you holding on to things here even today? That you should hand over and say, Lord, I want to thank you. I want to thank you that you've made me new. I thank you that you have forgiven me. I thank you that the work that you did on the cross of Calvary is for me now, today. That I am in your presence, that I am clean before you. Do you know the freedom of <laughs> Jesus offers? The woman caught in adultery that's recorded for us in John chapter 8. And the tax collector, rather than the Pharisee, were two people that discovered the amazing grace that Jesus delivers. I'd urge you, if you find yourself judgmental of others, to test and see whether it's because you haven't forgiven yourself, you haven't taken hold of grace truly. The consequences of judging Obviously there are consequences of judging on those that we judge, alienation, broken relationships, bruising and hurts for them, but there are also consequences of judging for us as the people that do the judging. It worsens our deep-seated securities, it doesn't help them, but it only worsens them. Psychologists have found that judging others might give us a temporary ego boost, but soon after our mood crashes. And we feel bad about ourselves. Frequent complaints about others also promotes depression rather than healing us. And then there's also the scriptural warning on judging, for they're in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with a measure you use, it will be measured to you. It's an amazingly strong verse, isn't it? With a measure you use, it will be measured to you. So then, the question for us is: Can we judge? Can we judge? I think the answer is yes, but I mean the whole of the Sermon on the Mount is chapters five to seven. It's basically Jesus challenging people to say, "I'm going to give you a new way of life. I'm going to change your heart." The first part of the Sermon on the Mount is the attitudes, the "be" attitudes, and we went through that over those eight weeks the types of attitudes that would characterise a follower of Jesus Christ and all the blessings that would follow when we adopted those attitudes and we would live them out. And what Jesus says to us is when you take hold of those attitudes and you live them out, your behaviour will change. Your behaviour will change. Can't help but change. And you'll be salt and light. And together, my community, people who follow me, will be a city on a hill That's God's plan for us. So we are to be people whose lives are different. People whose lives have been changed. Indeed, they have? They've been changed by the Spirit of God. We're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. There is no condemnation for us. Sure, we're human people. We've got feet of clay. We sin from time to time. We make mistakes. But we are different. And because of that, Our lives need to be different. The way we live our life needs to be different. And if it isn't, we need others who are mature in the faith, who have removed the planks out of their own eyes to come alongside and to encourage us in our journey of faith. This passage in Matthew verse 5, what Jesus is actually saying, yeah, get rid of the plank in your own eye. When you get rid of the plank in your own eye, you'll be able to see clearly to go and to remove the speck in your brother's eye. A little bit like, as the scriptures put it, iron sharpening iron. We need each other. And we need each other to encourage one another, to spur each other on to love and to good works. The scriptures tell us about encouraging one another in the journey of faith. So we can't just say, yep, we've been saved by grace, everyone else's behaviour is excused. God wants us to be different. And God wants us in his community to encourage one another to be different people. To live lives that are truly glorifying and honouring to God. So Jesus is saying, make sure you get your life in order. Don't be hypocritical. And once you've got your life in order, go and help your friend. There are times when a church leadership will have to take a stand, and make a judgment, and do that. And Paul gives us an example of that. But first he said, what business is it of mine? What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. That's why we say we don't judge those who don't know Jesus. How can we judge someone who doesn't know Jesus? Do we expect their behaviour to be different? We can't. Their lives haven't been transformed by the Spirit of God. So how can we sit on on judgement on people who are outside the church? And so what Paul's coming and saying is, hey, the judgement that needs to happen is those within the church. That's where the judgement needs to happen. And what Paul was referring to in this example was a case of incest in the church at Corinth. There was a bloke that was sleeping with his father's wife. Probably not his direct mother, I would imagine, but his stepmother. And this fellow kept on living his life that way. And Paul knew that. So what Paul was saying is, this can't go on. You've got to address the issue. You've got to bring judgment, and you've got to expel him from the church until he repents and he comes back into relationship, and then he can be restored. So Paul was giving a case where judgment had to happen, and it had to be swift, and it had to happen for a particular reason. But a more a more general approach would be the norm, and these next two verses tell us that. James writes, my brothers and sisters, if any of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. And Paul writing in Galatians says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, for you also may be tempted. Carrying each other's burdens. And in this way, it will fulfil the law of Christ. So both Paul and James recognise there are going to be times when Christians wander off the track and what they need is encouragement to come back and to walk the way God wants them to walk. What they need is someone who's removed that plank from their own eye, coming along and helping to restore them into fellowship. And I believe that that correction—I'd rather call it correction rather than judgment—that correction is to, can really only happen by someone who has relationship and trust with a person. Otherwise, it's likely to go pear-shaped. We live in community, we live in relationship, and we should be encouraging one another on. So, can we judge? Well, there's something. There are things that we're told that we can do, and that is to judge actions. And help restore people but we're not to judge motives or the intentions of the heart Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 he said we're not to judge the motives of the person's heart because we don't know what they are we don't know what they are we're only dreaming if we think we can judge someone's motives we can judge actions had a situation this week where someone acted in a way that I thought was quite strange, and I found myself imputing motives to them and starting to summarise what the motives might have been for that certain way of acting. And I knew the next part would start to be once I, dis- I, I imputed those motives, I would start to doubt their character and pull their character in. I was in the middle of preparing this sermon. <laughs> Why did I from God? It's like, don't you dare impute motives on someone else's actions. It's not your job. I'll do that if I come back again. That's what I'll do. So I need to sit down and understand more about the actions and then start to work through that. For those with the spiritual gift of discernment, we need to be careful in our discernment. so I need discern discernment of motives and make sure and it's the spirit that's giving us those discernment, that discernment rather than our own carnal judgment about all of that, because things aren't always as they seem. We need to be very careful; otherwise, we might be a little bit like Mildred. Um, I'm pleased to say that our church doesn't have a Mildred, but in another church I know, Mildred was a kind of the self-appointed um, morals crusader and campaigner of the church, also the church gossip. And she wasn't too happy. She came to church one day and she proclaimed that George um, was, everyone in the town would know that George was a town alcoholic because the night before, the day before, she'd seen George's uh, truck parked outside down in public town. So she came in, she talked to people at church, and she talked to George and she said, now, George, everyone will know. Everyone know what it's all about. Your truck was parked outside the pub all afternoon. They'll know that you've got a problem with drink. You're an alcoholic. George didn't say too much, but later on that night he went and he parked his truck outside Mildred's house <laughs> and he lived there all night. <laughs> See, we don't know what the situations are and we've got to be very careful. I don't want to be like a George or a Mildred. Well, I don't mind being like a George. I don't want to be like the male equivalent of the milk. I'm sure you don't either. I think our prayer and our attitude should be, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to praise you and thank you for who you are. Father, we thank you for the new life that we have in you. And, Father, so often we know that we don't even live up to our own expectations, let alone yours, and yet your grace is sufficient for us. And, Father, we pray that even this day you would just flood us with the experience of your love for us, the depth of your forgiveness for our sin, And that father you would free us to truly love one another not to sit in judgment but to truly love one another and father if there are things that we haven't forgiven ourselves for haven't forgiven others for we ask that you or your grace would work amongst us even this time and each of us would pray lord that you would search our hearts that you would know our anxious thoughts and that you would see whether there was any wicked way in us because, Lord, we want to keep walking with you in the way that is everlasting. And we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for community together. We thank you that we don't live life alone, that we have the privilege of walking with one another and encouraging one another on this journey of faith. What a special thing that is. Father, we give you praise and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name this morning.
1: Worthy of every
0: song I know.